Today we are concluding the first half of our study of Ephesians. Most of Paul's letters are about half doctrine and half application. So today we're finishing up that first half of the book, which focuses heavily on doctrine. But before we do that, let's kind of review the first half of the letter. So we began in chapter 1 weeks ago looking at the spiritual blessings that come from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So the Father chose us before the foundation of the world and set us apart to be holy before Him. Then Jesus provides redemption through His blood, forgiveness of sins, and then we also receive an inheritance. And then it is through the Holy Spirit that we are sealed with a guarantee of an inheritance to come. So that's what happened in the very beginning of chapter 1. The second half of chapter 1 was the first prayer that Paul offers on behalf of the church at Ephesus. And then the last couple of weeks we have been looking at chapter 2, which talked about the vertical dimension between God and man, how there was separation because of sin, and that Christ is the bridge to reconcile or to restore that relationship between God and man. And then we talked about how not only is there vertical healing between God and man, there's also horizontal healing amongst all of us. Specifically in Ephesus, Paul is talking about the relationship between Jew and Gentile and how Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection brings together a new humanity comprised of both Jew and Gentile. And then last week, at the very beginning of chapter 3, Paul basically expounds a little deeper into what that mystery is. How is it possible that Jew and Gentile can come together and be one? So today, we finalize this first half of the book by looking at another one of Paul's prayers. This is one of two prayers that Paul offers up in this book. And so this is how the first half of Ephesians closes. Now, I don't know about you, but we all have different spiritual disciplines that often are a struggle for us. So, for example, I don't have any problem reading my Bible. I don't have any problem forgiving people or accepting forgiveness. I don't have any problem showing up at church. Obviously, I have to be here every Sunday anyways, right? But I'll tell you one area historically in my life that I have struggled, and it is the spiritual discipline of prayer. Maybe you can identify with that. For me personally, as somebody who has trouble sitting still, it's difficult for me to just be alone. As an extrovert, I don't care to be alone. I don't like being alone. And so when it's just me and God, sometimes prayer is challenging for me. But as we have read this book, and as we have looked and examined not only the prayer in chapter 1, but the prayer we're going to look at today... Paul models for me and for all of us the importance of a powerful prayer life, not only for other people, but for ourselves as well. So this morning, we're going to focus on three primary aspects of this text. Number one, we're going to look at the posture of Paul's prayer. Number two, we're going to look at the petition of his prayer. And then number three, the praise of his prayer. So they're all P's. I don't always do that, but it worked out well today. The posture, the petition, and the praise of Paul's prayer in the second half of chapter 3. Number one, the posture of Paul's prayer. Now he begins here 
with this common phrase that we have seen throughout the letter, and that is, for this reason. You find it in chapter 1, verse 15. You find it in chapter 3, verse 1. And you find it in chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason is very similar to therefore. Which means when you see it in any of Paul's letters, you need to go back up and see what he is talking about previously. So for this reason, here in this part of verse 14, is referring back to everything that we talked about last week, basically in verses 2 through 13. And Paul says that he bows his knees before the Father. Now the word for bow is actually only used four times in the New Testament. It's used twice in the book of Romans, referring to some Old Testament quotations. It's used once in Philippians, quoting Isaiah. And then we find it here in Ephesians 3. Now in the Old Testament, there are a number of different positions that people would place themselves in when they prayed. Sometimes people would pray by standing. Oftentimes people would pray face down, laying down on the ground. And we also have, of course, being on your knees. Perhaps some of you in this room grew up on churches that actually had the kneeling benches. So in front of the pew, you could fold it down and you could get down on your knees in a posture of prayer. Now we know today that you can pray in any posture that you want to. There's nothing mystical or magical about standing or laying down flat or getting on your knees or even sitting down in a chair. But what Paul models for us here is the seriousness that we should bring when we come before God in prayer. Do we really understand who it is that we're talking to when we go to the Lord in prayer? We are talking to the one, Paul tells us, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We are talking to the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. It's really impossible in our human minds to understand the magnitude of we, if you're a follower of Christ in this room, being able to bring your requests to the God of the universe and the magnitude of what that means. You know, sometimes when we have conversations with people, there's people that want to talk to us, but we don't really want to talk to them. Now, I'm not talking about any of you in this room. I cherish all of my conversations with all of you, all the time. But sometimes, in our minds, when somebody approaches us and wants to talk to us, we're thinking in our heads, how much longer is this going to last? When can I get out of this conversation? When will my child tug on my leg to give me an excuse to get out of this conversation? I know that doesn't happen to any of you. I'm just confessing my own flesh before you this morning, okay? But I want you to know that when we approach our God in prayer, that is not how he views us coming before him. He is not sitting there rolling his eyes or thinking in his mind, boy, when will Taylor be done lamenting about what's happening in his life? When will Taylor be done confessing his sin, interceding on behalf of others? God does not view us as just some irritating person that he has to listen to from time to time. Normally, as Christians, when people approach us and they want to speak to us, we know the Christian thing to do is to listen. And we're obligated to do so. 
God is not only obligated to do so in one sense, he actually desires to hear from his children. There's a big difference between an obligation in order to keep up appearances or in order to not make anybody mad at you versus actually desiring to hear what someone is telling you. God loves hearing from his children through prayer. How do I know this? Well, we know this because of what Christ did. God sent his son to die the death that we deserve for the purpose of reconciling relationship with God the Father to humanity. If God was not interested in hearing the prayers of his children, then there was no reason to send Jesus. If God did not care about what you and I are going through as followers of him, then he would not have wasted time sending Jesus to bridge the gap, to restore relationship between God and man. The death of Jesus on the cross proves that God loves hearing from his children through prayer. So let me just encourage you this morning. If prayer like me, or like it is for me, if prayer is something that you struggle with, something that you just have difficulty consistently staying focused, I want to provide you some suggestions this morning of ways that perhaps can help and benefit your prayer life. Number one, pray God's word. Literally pray it. Psalm 1. Psalm 51, the confession of David. Exodus 15, the song of Moses. 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's prayer after she has become pregnant with Samuel. John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. There are a number of opportunities throughout Scripture that don't require us to come up with a whole list of things to pray through. We can literally pray God's word back to him. And when we do that, you will be amazed at how the Holy Spirit brings up in your mind and heart things that you can then intercede for, people that you can pray for, sin that you can confess, attributes of God that you can praise. That's really one of the most beneficial aspects of the Psalms. It's for that reason, to pray them, to sing them, to give praise to God for what he has done. So pray the word of God. If you're stuck in your prayer life, just pray it. Number two, there are any number of additional resources that can stimulate prayer. Two that I use, the Book of Common Prayer, and then the Valley of Vision, which is a collection basically of Puritan prayers. And so every morning in my time with the Lord, I whip out those resources and they get me going in my prayer time. And they spark ways for me to pray for other people and to confess sin. So you can pray God's word. You can find other resources that help you. And then number three, most importantly, did you know you can just ask God to help you pray? You can just say, God, I'm not really passionate about praying, would you give me a heart that is passionate for praying? I believe that God will do that. When we ask him for help, he guides his children. So if you deal with apathy in your prayer life, if you deal with inconsistency in your prayer life, I would simply say, God, make me passionate about praying to you. Make me passionate about interceding for others. 
Paul gives us a great example of that in this passage. So we see the posture of Paul's prayer. He gets down on his knees. He is passionately interceding for his brothers and sisters in Ephesus. But number two, we also see the petition of Paul's prayer. Now, as we work our way through the petition section of this prayer, I want you to notice that Paul uses all three persons of the Trinity. So he asks the Father to grant strength to the Ephesian believers through the Father's power and according to the riches of his Father's glory. Now, God's glory is basically the summation of all of his attributes. So think about what Paul is saying here. The riches, some translations might say wealth, the riches or the wealth of the summation of all of God's attributes strengthen you with power. That is what Paul is praying here. What an amazing request that Paul is praying on behalf of his Ephesian brothers and sisters. And how is that to be done? How is that possible? The answer is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent through which this is accomplished. The inner being that Paul references here is talking about the heart or the mind of the believer as opposed to the physical body on the outside. When we often think of strength, we think physical, external. We think of somebody who can rip a phone book in half. Can anybody do that in here? Can anybody lift up the back end of a vehicle? That's what we often think of. Physical strength. It's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul illustrates the power of inner strength. Elsewhere in one of his letters, Philippians chapter 1 verse 21, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That's inner strength on display. To know that nothing happens to us externally on the physical side that ultimately determines the outcome of our spiritual nature in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if it's not already happening, it will soon happen. Our external physical bodies will deteriorate. They will weaken over time. But that does not equal, according to Scripture, spiritual weakness. There are often times when I go out and I visit those in our church that are not able to come anymore because of health problems. And they often ask me, what can I do for our church? I don't feel like I'm able to do anything. And I always tell them, you can pray. Brothers and sisters, you might be confined to a wheelchair, to a chair one day, to a hospital bed. But there is inner strength that we do not lose in this life. The Holy Spirit can still ooze out of you. Whether or not you have the ability to get up and walk or to leave the house. That is the inner strength that Paul is talking about in this passage. God the Father strengthens with power through his Holy Spirit. And then in verse 17, we see the role of the Son. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now we have to make sure we understand what Paul is talking about here. Paul's not praying for the Ephesian believers to become Christians. That's already happened. 
We talked about that in chapter 1. They have already been sealed with the Holy Spirit. They've already received the guarantee of an inheritance that will one day come. So Paul is not talking about the moment of salvation when the Spirit of God comes into our hearts, the new birth that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. What Paul is talking about here when he says that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith is basically Jesus taking up permanent residency in your heart. Living in your heart. In other words, Christ is a constant presence in your life. This type of dwelling that Paul is praying on behalf of the Ephesian believers here does not relate at all to any type of casual or nominal faith. In other words, we're not talking about just calling on Jesus when tragedy strikes in our family. We're not just talking about engaging in a spiritual conversation when forced to talk about it. We're talking about Christ living active in your heart where you think about him, you meditate on him, you desire to be in his presence. Brothers and sisters, church of Jesus Christ, that should be our prayer for one another. That we desire to have Christ dwell richly in us individually. When we pass each other in the hallways, coming into worship or after worship, we're not just doing the casual, how you doing, I'm doing good, but we are saying, brother, sister in Christ, How are you doing spiritually? How is Christ dwelling richly in you at this moment? Sometimes we try to come up with eloquent prayers on our own when we can simply pray that Christ would dwell richly in our own hearts and the hearts of everyone around us. The Ephesian believers, Paul tells us, have been rooted and grounded in love. Rooted being an agricultural term, grounded being an architectural term. In love refers to God's love in this passage. He is the root and the ground of the love that the Ephesian believers have. One commentator said it like this, this root and foundation of love refers to God having chosen them, predestined them, bestowed them in the beloved, redeemed them, made them a heritage, sealed them with the Holy Spirit, made them alive, raised and seated them in the heavenlies, and placed them equally in one new person in the body of Christ. Therefore, for the believer, the origin of this love is God's love. If you are in Christ today, You are not rooted or grounded in anything else but the love of God that he bestows on us through the working of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It is that divine love that roots and grounds each individual Christian. And it is that same love that roots and grounds the body of Christ collectively. Now look at verse 18 because it's a little confusing. It says, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And then it kind of ends abruptly. 
So you can imagine if you read the commentaries, commentators have a field day with this passage. They don't know what in the world is going on. But sometimes when we read God's word, the simplest solution is often the answer. What's Paul talking about here? He gives all these attributes, breadth, length, height, and depth. If you're thinking it's God's love, the answer would be you're correct. He's talking about God's love. More specifically, the dimensions of his love. Paul's desire for the Ephesian believers is to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that they may be filled with the fullness of God. Think about the love of Christ for a moment. Number one, think about how incredible it is. Number two, think about how you and me do not deserve it. And then number three, Think about that if you are in Christ, you have it. Brothers and sisters, the love of Christ is really beyond our comprehension. It makes no sense that God would love sinners like you and me. And yet Jesus is the evidence that he does. He demonstrated his own love for us. In that, Paul tells us in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To give of oneself completely for another in our context, 2022, is unthinkable. To give of oneself completely with no strings attached whatsoever does not gel well at all with the current culture that we live in. When the greatest slogan of the world today is do what makes me happy. The teaching of Jesus flies in the face of that phrase. And any other expressive individualism phrase you want to come up with, the teaching of Jesus does not align with that. Paul is praying here in this passage. He is petitioning for the Ephesian believers, basically, that they would have spiritual maturity. He desires that the Ephesian believers be full of what he talks about elsewhere in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He doesn't explicitly pray for that here, but that's what he's praying for. He is praying that the church of Jesus Christ, being rooted and grounded in the love of God would be filled with the fullness of God. We talked earlier about God's glory, which it is the summation of all of his attributes. And as a church, we should be striving on earth as best as we can in the flesh to be the summation of all of God's attributes for the world to see. So we want to be full as best as we can as sinners, full of love, full of joy, peace, patience, kindness. And I won't name them all again, but you can go to Galatians 5, 23 and 24 to read them. That is what Paul is praying on behalf of the Ephesian believers. That is the petition that he is bringing before God for those people. Here's what he's not pleading for them. He is not praying, God, keep them safe from Roman persecution. He is not saying, God, give them billions and billions of dollars 
He is not praying, God, send them numerical growth. He doesn't pray any of those things in this passage or any of the passages that he's praying for churches. He prays for their spiritual maturity. Brothers and sisters, if you want to intercede for your brothers and sisters in this room, in addition to their physical conditions and family members that might be sick, you can pray for their spiritual maturity. There's actually nothing more healthy that we can be praying for one another that we would grow into the fullness of God with the attributes that Paul mentions in Galatians 5. Pray that me as your pastor would grow in love for y'all and for others outside the community. Pray that I would grow in love and joy and peace and patience. That is what we need to be praying for one another. The fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions elsewhere. Should we not desire that for one another over almost anything else? It's that God would, within us, spark a desire through His Spirit to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. That's what He petitions on behalf of His Ephesian brothers and sisters. That's why we always talk about that it's not about being a larger church. It's about being a healthy church. A healthy church trumps a large church numerically every single time. Now, that doesn't mean we can't strive for both and proclaim the gospel and invite people in. But if there is a choice between large or healthy, we want healthy every single time. So this is his petition on behalf of the Ephesians. And then number three, it's the praise of Paul's prayer. As he concludes this prayer, he makes sure that he gives credit to the appropriate source for everything that has happened to the church in Ephesus up to this point. God is the only one who answers our prayers. Don't forget that, brothers and sisters. We have lots of doctors in this room. They know. They're not the ones that heal you. God is the one that heals He provides doctors and nurses and medicine as signs of his grace to us. But God is the one who provides healing. And Paul tells us here that God can do abundantly more than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now, not to become a prosperity gospel preacher, because we don't want to be that. What I'm not saying is that if you have this God-sized dream, you name it and God will automatically give it to you. That's not what this verse is saying. So there's one side of taking verses like this to the extreme. That if we just believe it in faith and have the right attitude, God will do it. So that's one extreme that would be unhealthy. But there's another extreme that would be unhealthy. And that is to never have faith that God can accomplish what he puts in our hearts. There's a balance here. And that balance is found right here in this verse. Paul is saying God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That doesn't mean that if we pray for a million dollars, we're going to get a million dollars. 
But oftentimes, I don't know about you, but for me, it's not the prosperity side of things that I struggle with. It's actually the lack of faith. Actually believing that if I go to God in prayer with this idea or this vision of what God would like me to accomplish or my family to accomplish or this church to accomplish, instead of actually thinking God can do it, I just say there's no possible way that can happen. That is a lack of faith. I'm confessing to you, brothers and sisters, as your pastor, that sometimes I struggle believing that God can do what Paul says he can do in this passage. I like to think I'm not alone in that. So let's use this prayer that Paul gives us to strengthen our faith in the power of God to do far more than what we think he is capable of doing. Are you burdened this morning for a friend you know who doesn't know Christ? Have you already decided in your mind there's no way that person will ever receive the love of Jesus? I want you to pray in faith that God will in fact convict that person of their sin, draw them to himself, and that that friend would trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Are you concerned about a brother or sister, perhaps in this room or somewhere else that you know, who is apathetic in their faith toward God? That at one time they were passionate on fire for the Lord and now they just seem to to be disinterested. Let me ask you, have you prayed to God and asked him to awaken within that individual a zeal and a passion for the word of God and his church and for fellowship with other believers? Do you have apathy perhaps in your own heart right now towards God and his church? Have you prayed and asked God to awaken within you a passion and a zeal for the word of God and lost souls and his church. Brothers and sisters, if we will go before God with what is on our hearts, he will listen. He might not respond the way that we want him to respond, but we have already established that because of what Christ did, his finished perfect death on the cross, that all that are in Christ have access to approach God with boldness and with confidence. Do we pray that way? That's what Paul wants us to do. That's what he prayed for the church at Ephesus to do. So let's let this prayer that finishes out the first half of Ephesians stir in us a desire to come before the Lord on our knees. And when he answers our prayers, or even when he doesn't, may we still say what Paul concludes this passage with, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are faithful. You are good. You hear the prayers of your children. You have to because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. So there's 
two ways I want to pray this morning. First, I want to pray for the believers in the room, those that have trusted in the finished work of Christ, that can approach you with confidence and boldness. I pray that you would stir within all of us a desire and a passion to pray faithfully for our families, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our coworkers, those that don't know Christ, those that do. We pray for spiritual maturity for one another. We pray for spiritual maturity within this body at First Baptist Dothan, that we would be a healthy and mature church. And then I want to pray, number two, for any of those in this room that have not trusted in Christ, that have not repented of their sin, they have not believed in the gospel, that you would move in their hearts, draw them to yourself, so that they can approach you with complete access and confidence and boldness. We thank you for the prayers that Paul models for us in this letter. May we use them as examples and inspiration in our own time with you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.